Good evening, everyone. How we doing? <laughs> Good. Hey, we got Bibles with us on your phone? Yeah, yeah. Pull up in your Bible, Ephesians chapter six. That's where we're gonna be tonight, Ephesians chapter six, as we wrap up really four weeks we've spent here now thinking about the spiritual realities of this world. Uh, as you turn to Ephesians six, um, I, I want us to begin to think about tonight um, with respect to um, something I was doing this morning. So um, what I'm about to say is gonna make me sound very old and I'm very comfortable with this, okay? Um, so this morning I was reading the newspaper with my kids, all right? So, so that's, that, yeah, that's where I sound old, right? I, I am actually one of like the six people in the Canelo Valley, when the acorn hits my, my driveway, I walk out and grab it and go read it with my children. So my, my, my son's like climbing on me. I'm actually reading the newspaper. But one of the things you'll find in newspapers, if you read them, and I assume like no one else in this room reads, new, anyone else in this room read newspapers? All right, my people, like four of you. Okay. But, but one of the things you'll find really quickly um, is that there are different sections of it. And one of the sections um, of the newspaper is it's political commentary. And yet there's this tool they use for political commentary. And the political commentary tool um, is that of political cartoons. And, and so again, political cartoons, not your generation, not what you think of at all, but this is the way for a long, long time human beings have used to kind of sketch out really terrifying realities like war and famine and plague and pestilence and all these things, uh, a way to kind of describe those realities in a humorous way. And so you'll see political cartoons about wars. You'll see dictators drawn into caricatures uh, as a way of taking a really scary reality and making it really comical so it's more digestible. Now, I'm talking about this to a bunch of blank faces because it doesn't make any sense to you. You don't read newspapers. You don't do political cartoons. You think it's absurd that we would take serious things and turn them into a cartoon. And you would say that with a straight face, despite the fact that about 15 people, I'm sure, have this photo somewhere on their phone. Like the, the meme thing, right? Like, like you're like, that's crazy that you would use cartoons to describe serious realities, right? And that's what you do. And then someone's looking at this going, Brian, that is so 2016. And here's what I need you to know. I don't care. <laughs> and you know why I don't care? I'm over the age of 30. And once you hit 30, you don't have to keep up with internet culture anymore. It's such a release. It's such a beautiful thing to look forward to. But anyway, my point being this, what do we do with memes? What we do with memes is we take really serious things like political chaos, a global pandemic, a melting down economy. And instead of actually dealing with those emotions, what we do is we make them into funny pictures and we send them to each other. And just in case this hasn't gotten personal enough, some of you don't do this with like global stuff. Some of you do this with memes about being single and feeling single your whole life. Some of you do this with memes about never being able to buy a home. And you send this around and you take these really serious realities, you turn it into a cartoon and that way you don't actually have to deal with it. And here's why I want us thinking about this tonight. Because human beings for all of human civilization, for all of human history have done this with really serious things. We take really serious and important things and we trivialize them by sketching them into drawings or cartoons. So let me give you an example. For all of Christian history, when you think of an angel, you have probably thought of something like this. This is the way they've always drawn angels. And it's amazing to me because every time in the Bible, an angel encounters a human being, you know what happens? The human being falls to the ground and thinks they're going to die. And then you see this and you're like, if I saw that, I don't know that fall to the ground and die is what I do. I might chuckle. It might be kind of humorous to me or even worse. You might see this image and like this, if this showed up in my backyard tonight, I wouldn't fall to the ground and want to die. I'd be like, that is so cool. You know? So what have we done? We've taken a really serious reality that the scriptures talk about of these angels and we've trivialized it by turning it into a comic. We've trivialized it to make it more digestible to us. 
In the same way the Bible talks about this reality, this individual called Satan. And for most of church history, for most of artistic history, here's what we see with Satan. It's always a guy with horns and he's got wings and a little tail and a pitchfork. We're not sure where the pitchfork came from, but that's always in the drawing. And so this is your image of Satan. It's just kind of this squirrely guy who's kind of getting into trouble, but you could probably drink a beer and have a poker night with him. Like that's what we think of with Satan. Or even worse, you get this and you're like, that's the great enemy of God? Like that right there, we've taken something really serious and we've trivialized it. And here's the principle I need us to get as we jump into Ephesians 6 tonight, that those who trivialize the meaningful will find life painful. You will. When you take meaningful things in your life and you trivialize them and make them silly, your life will always be painful. Let me give you a non-spiritual example here. Um, some of you are in school right now, in college or grad school, and you have trivialized a very serious thing called student debt. Oh yeah, that got real. And you are just taking out debt because it's play money. And you're like, how much money can I have? They're like, $50,000. You're like, sign me up, right? And no part of you is thinking that this is a serious thing. But anyone who is over the age of 25 will tell you, this is a serious thing. You will pay this back someday. You will suffer for the decisions that you are making now. When you take a serious thing, a meaningful thing, and you trivialize it, it causes pain in your life. Do you know that we are the first generation that has tried to normalize pornography? And so what we have done is we have taken a very serious thing. We have trivialized it and said, it's no big deal. It's just you personally. It's you privately. It's not hurting anyone. It's just your decision. Why judge you? And it's turned into an extraordinarily painful thing for a generation, including many in this room, who are addicted to pornography. We've done this with serious things in our life. You can even take minute things like nutrition. Like you can joke and laugh about eating like a teenager, but if you do that for the rest of your life, it will have serious consequences. I'm not even talking about being on a strict diet. I'm just talking about eating a vegetable ever, okay? Like if you trivialize what is meaningful and important in this world, the only thing coming your way is pain. And here's what I need you to know tonight. There are serious realities in this world of angels, demons, powers, principalities, and the dark forces of spiritual evil in this world. And if you trivialize it, if you laugh it off, if you shrug it off as something silly or small or beneath you, it will only cause you pain in this world. And so Ephesians chapter six, I want us to see this so clearly tonight. Um, here's how it begins. Again, if you have your Bible, it'll be on the screen too, but Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, it says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So what you'll see here is that we're supposed to put on the full armor of God, and we're going to get to that a little later on in the sermon. But what you'll see at the very end of this verse here is that there is a basic assumption, a foundational claim in this text. And that foundational claim is that there is an individual, a reality in this world called the devil, Satan, the great enemy of God and the great enemy of the people of God. And what I want you to know, when you read the scripture, Satan is this reality that's from the very beginning has been warring against God and warring against God's people. He's not a joke. He's not a little man with a pitchfork. He doesn't like play poker and drink beer and have a good time with people. He hates you. He hates your God. He hates your family. He hates your faith. He hates everything about what's happening in this room right now. Satan is a reality in the scriptures. Like I put it this way, in the Bible, belief in Satan is foundational, not optional. Belief in Satan is foundational, not optional. It's not something you can kind of believe or not believe. It is a core to understanding the worldview of the Christian and the worldview of the Bible. And I get that for so many people, Satan seems like this crazy thing that ancient people believed in, but we smart, sophisticated, modern people would never believe in Satan. 
I've been told all the time that believing in Satan is crazy, and you may think it's crazy, but I think it is crazier to look around the world and see all the wickedness and the evil going on and not believe that Satan or some kind of evil force is animating behind it. That's what's crazy. It's crazy to look around the world and be like, wow, all these human beings just happen to make bad decisions all at once. No, there's an animating force behind evil. And if you can't believe in evil because you haven't seen it, I want to try to convince you that all the most meaningful, important, and significant things in your life, you can't see. You have never seen love. You've only seen the impact of love. You have never seen hope. You've only seen the impact of hope. You have never seen joy or peace. You've only seen the impact, the physical manifestation of an invisible reality that you cannot see. So that's what I want you to understand about Satan. Just because you can't see him, Just because you don't fully wrap your mind around it doesn't mean that this isn't a serious reality you have to grapple with. And Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 begins with the claim that we need to be strong in the Lord and take our stand because we're standing against the devil and his, if you have a Bible circle this word, his schemes. The devil has schemes. I want you to know that. I want you to know that the devil isn't just randomly bopping around the world trying to like hurt people. I want you to know that the devil isn't just randomly trying to bother people like you saw in some exorcism movie and he's like taking over someone's body and just kind of chilling there. No, the devil has schemes and he is playing them in your life. I'll put it this way, if you're a baseball fan, it's like the devil has four pitches and he just keeps throwing them over and over and over again. And if you want to know how to take your stand against the devil and his schemes, you got to know what pitches are coming. Or to bring it into the football realm, like the devil has four plays, okay? He's got a counter, he's got a fullback, he's got a long toss, and he's got a slant. Like he's got four plays, and he runs them over and over and over again. And if you don't know what those four plays are, he will work you over time and time again. So here's the scouting report. Here's the devil's schemes. Number one is deception. The devil's number one tool is to lie to you. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve go read Genesis chapter 3. All he does to them to cause humanity to plunge into chaos is lie to them. Constantly, over and over and over again. Your sin isn't so bad. Your sin will make you happy. God is not worthy of your trust. You should go ahead and get what you want now because God's never going to come through for you. He's not faithful. He's not loving. He's not with you. He's abandoned you. Satan lies to you. This is the battleground for your mind. And until you get that Satan's favorite pitch to throw is deception at you, you will get worked over by Satan over and over and over again. Number one is deception. Number two is temptation. Temptation is the battle for your strength. Temptation is what's going to happen to some of you when you go home tonight and you're alone in your room and your phone pops on and you suddenly start to scroll through and your eyes are brought to something you should never be looking at. Temptation is what's going to happen to you when you go to the party and you've sworn off drinking because it's become a problem for you and there's a bottle of scotch on the counter. Temptation is what's gonna happen to you when you know that guy's no good for you, but he keeps texting you and you feel lonely and it kind of feels like it might be nice. That's temptation. And Satan will throw that at your flesh, at your strength over and over and over again. Deception, temptation. Here's number three. Number three is discouragement. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. Discouragement is those moments where you're overwhelmingly sad and you don't know why. Discouragement is where everything seems to be going right and yet you have a heaviness of heart. Discouragement is where you feel like you've been making some progress in your faith and yet you just seem to feel like you're never good enough. You'll never measure up. See, Satan wants to speak into your heart and he wants to tell you constantly, you're not good enough. You don't measure up enough. You haven't progressed enough. You're still struggling with that same sin. What kind of loser, pathetic Christian still struggles with that same sin? That is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is the voice of the enemy. 
Discouragement is the battle for your heart. And then finally, accusation. Accusation is the battle for your soul. Can I tell you the most powerful weapon Satan has is accusation? Because when Satan can accuse you of unforgiven sin, that sends you to hell forever. When Satan can look at an individual and declare to God, this individual has unforgiven sin, that is what damns a man or woman. The great title for Satan in the scriptures in the Old Testament is the accuser of the brethren. And what he does is he points at you and says, that man is a great sinner. That woman is a great sinner. And your job is to look back at Satan and say, yes, I am a great sinner, but I have a great savior who is greater still. He died for my sin. He rose from the dead for my salvation. And whatever claim you have on me was nullified on the cross of Calvary and in the resurrection of Christ. That's what we say to Satan. But his great accusation is still going to come your way. So you have been fully and finally forgiven. Like Romans 8, 1 speaks over you a word. There's no condemnation for you anymore, right? Like all your sin's gone, not just some of it, all of it. And yet Satan's gonna roll up on you and say, but what you did last weekend or what you did tonight or what you did tomorrow, what you did the next week, that sin needs to be forgiven. And you remind him constantly, it already has been on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what do we do? We look at Satan and we recognize that he has schemes. And what are these schemes over and over? Deception, temptation, discouragement, accusation. He's gonna go after your mind, your heart, your soul, and your strength. He's gonna go after every part of your being. And your job is to stand firm knowing that Satan is going to run his schemes, but you are ready for them. You've seen them coming and you know how to respond. Verse 12 says this. It says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the, dark pow- or the powers of darkness in this world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let me read that again. The greatest struggle in your life, the greatest enemy you have, the greatest battle you will ever fight is not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not against human beings. It is against the rulers and the authorities, the spiritual forces in this world, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, what Paul is trying to get you to understand is that if he could, God could open your eyes, you would be so terrified and so overwhelmed with the reality of angels and demons everywhere. And I'm not trying to make this claim to scare you. I'm trying to say that there's a reality of spiritual warfare that is going on at all times. And I just think in our materialistic, reductionistic world, we just think it's kind of God's up in heaven somewhere and we're here. I told you earlier, this world is infused with spirituality constantly all over the place. And that is our great struggle. You'll see that word in verse four, that this struggle. And I've always seen the word struggle and thought like, okay, that's our battle. That's our struggle. This is spiritual warfare. But then this week I went up and looked up the word and and some of you never care when I do this, but some of you get really interested. The Greek word behind this is actually the word pele. And here's what Pele means. I love this. It means wrestling, okay? But then here's the, 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 the deeper part. It says, a contest between two in which one endeavors to throw the other and in which one is decided when the victor is able to hold his opponent down with his hand upon his neck. And, and I thought to myself, could there be a better description of what spiritual warfare is? See, see, what's the first part of this? A contest between two in which one endeavors to throw the other. You ever felt thrown in your spiritual life? You ever felt like things were going well and then suddenly everything went sideways? You ever had a moment where you woke up from, 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 from your sleep at night and you were just too filled with shame to even pray? You ever had a time um, where, where you recognize that your sin just seems so overwhelming and you feel so helpless, like you were once in such a solid place, like some of you at one point in your life were on such solid ground with Jesus and it just feels like you got thrown. It's because you're in a wrestling match with Satan. 
It's because he's wrestling you. He's trying to throw you. He's trying to throw you off balance. This is why so many Christians read that our battle is not against flesh and blood, and yet we spend endless time screaming at other Christians or screaming at people from a different political party because we've been thrown. And Satan has used our momentum against us. He's thrown us. And then what does it say? And which the one is decided when the victor is able to hold down his opponent with his hand upon his neck. And I just have to wonder if some of you feel that way sometimes. Like you just feel so overwhelmed with your sin, you feel like you have no hope of getting out of it. You feel so discouraged by what's going on in life, you feel powerless, you feel hopeless, you feel so anxious and nervous about things like you could never be confident about the future. See, here's what I need you to understand. When it says in verse 12 that we have a struggle, that struggle is a wrestling match. And it is a wrestling match you're in. And here's a question I need to ask some of you tonight. Is the devil beating you in a wrestling match you didn't even know you were in? I wonder if that's happening for some of you. I wonder if for some of you, there is a spiritual wrestling match going on in your life and you didn't even know you were participating. And what's happened is you're getting worked over, you're getting owned because you didn't even know you were in the wrestling match. And so you think everything's physical. You think everything's situational in your life. You think everything's because of the, something someone did to you. You think everyone's because of the people out there and Satan is destroying you because you didn't even see it coming. That, that's why, so um, in the fifth century BC, there's this guy um, named Sun Tzu who, who writes The Art of War. Uh, it's this ancient sort of classic book. And here's what he says, and I think it's so relevant to our conversation tonight. He says, all warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we're far away. When we are far away, we must make him believe we are near. This is right in five centuries before Jesus was born. This is the art of war. The art of war is deception. And that's what Satan is doing to some of you. He has you deceived. You don't even realize that your life, you are suffering so deeply because you have taken something meaningful like spiritual warfare and you have trivialized it to something silly and it is causing you pain. And we do this for all kinds of reasons. For some of you, we've talked about this before, you've fallen into sort of naturalism. So you would call yourself a Christian and say you believe in God, but you've actually fallen into the spirit of our age that says nothing exists that we can't taste, tell, taste smell, and touch, right? Nothing outside of the physical world exists. And so some of you actually say you believe in a spiritual realm, but you don't live like that's true. For some of you, you've fallen into scientism. Now, scientism is not the same as science. Science says um, that we can have physical processes where we can understand the world. Scientism says the only things that matter in the world is that which can be measured. And if you've fallen into that belief, you're never going to believe in the spiritual realm because that can't be measured under a microscope or in a tube or with a measuring stick. Some of you have fallen into that, and some of you have fallen into this default deism where you think God's just kind of up in heaven. He sent you off to do your thing, and your job is to just kind of muddle through this world until you can get back up to heaven. But that is not at all what the scriptures call us to. And when we get stuck in these things, here's what happens. Don't miss this. You are in a wrestling match with Satan and his demons. You are in a wrestling match in the spiritual war. But if you have fallen into the deception of not even recognizing the power and the reality of the powers and principalities and evil forces in this world, you will still feel the pain. It's just you'll start to assign that pain to a person rather than to where it's actually coming from. You will start to look at people and go, those people are the reason I'm in pain. Those people are the reason I'm suffering. That group over there is the person I should be mad at. My enemy is over there. My enemy is her. My enemy is him. My enemy is them. You will start to look around the world. And because you're not actually buying into the seriousness of spiritual warfare, you, like so many people and even so many Christians, will start to fall into the idea that your enemy is a person. 
And let's declare this once and for all tonight. I need to say this to you. Your enemy is not the Democrats or the Republicans, liberals or conservative, terrorists or nation states, racists or abortionists, socialists or billionaires, politicians or the media, mass advocates or anti-vassers, coastal elites or country folk, the cowards or the culture warriors, the bigots or the self-righteous, or any other human being made in the image of God and ransomed by the blood of Christ. Amen? That is not your enemy. That is not who you set your sights on. They are not the great cause of your problems. They are not the one you should set your, they are not the one you're in a wrestling match with. I need to be clear that your enemy is Satan and his demons, the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is your enemy. And until you get that, you will fall into our culture's pattern of pointing at some other group, some other people. Maybe I just named them. You're like, yeah, they're the worst. No, they're not the worst. Satan's the worst. He hates you. Those people are just muddling through. What we want to do is we want to look at people and say, you know, I may disagree with them, but they are not my enemy. My enemy was crushed under the foot of Christ on the cross, and one day will be thrown into the pit forevermore. That's what I want to believe. So what does this mean practically for us? I want to just like, I just want to slip up in the air here. Three things. Number one, I want us to assume that the issue is, in fact, spiritual. It is spiritual. Um, there's this common trend uh, among pastor types like me or spiritual guru people to say, like, hey, don't over-spiritualize everything. And I get it. Like, if your shoe's untied, don't be like, the demons! I'm like, no, just, like, just like do it. Or, like, you didn't fill your car up with gas. You're like, Beelzebub! No, like, like just go, go, go to 76, like, get it done, right? Right, right? So, so, so there are definitely some things where, like, if you over-spiritualize it. But, but can I just point this out? Um, I know almost no one who suffers with that, okay? I know a lot of you in this room, maybe even most of you or many of you, I, you don't suffer with this. This is not your problem. People are like, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. And my thing is like, no, some of you need to start spiritualizing things. Yeah. Like I have this thing, like my wife and I have some fights that we get into over and over and over again. And if you've ever been in a long-term relationship, even if you're not married, you get this. There's some fights where you're like, haven't we had this fight like 150 times? And now we're back into this fight. We're back into this disagreement. And really it's stemming from my insecurities and your frustrations. And those two things are colliding. And why in the world would I not think this is a spiritual issue? But like, where do I get off thinking that this relationship between me and my wife isn't something Satan would love to blow up? Where do I get off thinking that? Or some of you just walk under this like crushing weight of an insecurity in your life. And so you've gone through all these different things of like, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and go, you go girl. And like, that'll make, no, it's, 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 it's a spiritual issue. And, and you can try to work through it in all kinds of ways. But until you recognize that this is a spiritual issue, this is not a physical issue, you, you will never, ever get better. Like, listen, some of you are in a relationship right now and you keep crossing lines with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You say, I'll never do it again, and you do it again. And so you have all these ideas of how you're going to fix it, and you talk it through, but you've never thought to sit down, fall on your knees, and fall on your face, and ask God that he would protect you from that temptation. Because it's a spiritual issue. And for some of you, you've said, oh, I don't want to over-spiritualize this. I don't want to over-spiritualize this. But it is a spiritual issue. Or like, listen, um, I don't think anyone right now looks around at American culture and goes, I think we're doing pretty good. I think, I think overall, I'd give us like a solid A-, minus, right? No one thinks that, right? Everyone looks around and goes, we have gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? Like things are out of control. And yet, you know, one of the most naive things you could do is read all the reports about how it's politics and economics and education and parenting and not realize that it is a spiritual crisis in our country. 
It is a spiritual issue. Well, like just recently I was hanging out with a buddy of mine and we were talking about this really complicated issue of like me and him and these other people. We were just kind of like working through all of it. And at one point he goes, ah, Brian, like I still want to over-spiritualize the issue. And then like both of us stopped and we're like, why do I say that so often? Why am I always trying to avoid sounding like there's a spiritual level to my problems? There is. And so I just want to give you permission in your small groups, in your conversations, when you hang out with each other, stop apologizing for recognizing realities that are actually at play in this world. It is a spiritual issue. So number one, assume that it is a spiritual issue. Number two, I want you to be aware of spiritual evil, but I don't want you to be afraid of it. I don't want you to be afraid of it. Why don't I want you to be afraid of it? I don't want you to be afraid of it um, because the scriptures are clear that Jesus on the cross put the principalities and powers to an open shame triumphing over them on the cross. And that what is happening right now is that Jesus has already won the war. We're part of the mop-up operation, but the war's not in doubt. Like there's not some great struggle between evil and God going on. And we're like, gosh, I hope God pulls this one off. Like the game's already over. It's a hundred to nothing with two minutes left in the fourth quarter. And like the backups are in the game right now, okay? That's what's happening right now. So we want to be aware of spiritual evil in this world. And we want to take it serious, but we don't want to be afraid. It's like this. So um, for years and years and years, I would take students here from Calvary um, over to Uganda on a mission trip. And if you've ever been on a mission trip of any kind, uh, especially to kind of international spaces, um, for the most part, one of the primary things we, we train students on is you do not drink the water in Uganda. Uh, and the reason you don't drink the water in Uganda is because it is filled with parasites and bacteria and all sorts of things that will just destroy your stomach and ultimately destroy your trip, right? And so that's the big training. Do not drink the water. Do not drink the water. And so what do we do the whole week? We're just like, here's bottled water. Drink this. This is safe. And so we're even like, hey, as you're brushing your teeth, don't put it under the water spigot. Instead, just pour the water on it, right, from your water bottle. What do we want them to be? We want them to be aware that the water is going to harm them. We want them to be aware that there is harm out there. But I do not want any high school student to ever go to Uganda, see a little stream of water and be like, ah, right? Our goal isn't that they're afraid of the water. Our goal is that they're aware of it. We want them to be aware of it. It's not that they have to fear the water. It's that we want them to have it in their periphery. We want them to know that it's there. We want them to know that it is a danger, but we also want them to know that they have something that can satisfy the deepest parts of their soul. That's what we want for them. We want you to be aware but not afraid. If you leave tonight afraid of the spiritual realm, you've missed it because greater is he that is in you than anyone who's in the world. Like there's just nothing that can take you. You are not at risk here. There is a power within you that raised Christ from the dead and you should have no fear, no fear of what comes at you. Number three, I want you to cultivate an appetite for the spiritual things through spiritual practices. Um, one of the ways we start to become aware of the spiritual things in this world is spiritual practices. And so when you pray, when you read your Bible, when you fast, when you get together in small group, when you come to worship, when you sit in silence and solitude, when you serve, when you do these things, you start to become more aware of the spiritual atmosphere around you. And I'm not saying that you become this person who can suddenly like see a demon sitting up on the tech booth. Maybe that is your gift. Maybe God has given you those eyes. He hasn't given me those eyes. But I can be aware when I'm in a moment and I go, you know what? This is an oppressive moment. Lies are seeping into this moment. You're starting to believe things that aren't actually from you. They're from somewhere else. You're discouraged right now. And it's not just because you're bummed. It's because you're being attacked. You can start to become aware of this. So I remember uh, the first time I ever did a Daniel fast, uh, it was back in 2019. And what I did was this like really hardcore Daniel fast. In Daniel chapter one, Daniel does this Daniel fast where it says he eats vegetables and water only for 10 days. I was like, I'll give that a try. 
It was really hard, okay? It was really difficult. It was vegetables and water, like no salt, no anything, just vegetables and water. And so I'm going through this whole thing and I didn't get to drink my beloved coffee either. Like this is a real rough thing. So I remember day 11 when I woke up and I was like, I'm gonna break the fast. And so at the time, um, the way I was drinking coffee and, and just don't, don't judge me for this. And some of you are coffee snobs. I was drinking out of my Keurig, okay? And I know some of you like look down on me, but that's okay. We can love each other later. Um, but, but, but here's the deal. So I, I, I do my little Keurig and I pull out my cup of coffee and I've had this Keurig for years and that's how I've drank my coffee. And I go to drink the coffee and I find it's absolutely disgusting. And I throw it down the sink and I make another thing of Keurig. I was like, something was wrong with that pod. And two or three pods in, I recognize nothing is wrong with the pod. The, the Keurig coffee has always tasted this bad. That's what I realized. But, but here's, don't miss this. Here's what happened. I had spent 10 days not overwhelmingly saturating my mouth with every bit of processed food that my taste buds had actually grown back. I was able to taste what was actually there because it wasn't masked with all the layers on top of it. That's what we do in spiritual practices. That's what fasting does. It removes all of the junk that's numbed our senses to God, that's dulled our affections for God, and suddenly we can start to see that. And I think some of you are so obsessed with your phone, always on the TV, always listening to music, always have podcasts in your ear. There's never a moment of silence. There's never a moment where you recognize the reality around you. And of course you can't sense the spiritual because it's been so dulled to the things of God. And so what do we want to do? We want to cultivate an appetite for the things of God by spiritual practices over and over and over again, reading your Bible, praying, building and fasting, not just to the first 21 days of January, but into your life where it becomes part of your life so that you can build an appetite for the things of God. Here's what it says in verse 13. It says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Now I wanna point out here in the text it says we're to put on the full armor of God. And again, we're going to look at that in a second, but it says, so when the day of evil comes, and can I just point out to you that it doesn't say if the day of evil comes. It says when it comes. But like the assumption is it's coming. It is barreling at you like a freight train. Evil, suffering, persecution, you dealing with hard things in this world. It is coming at you. And here's the problem. Most people, most people try to avoid the day of evil. They try to avoid it. Most people set up their lives in such a way where they are trying to make sure nothing bad ever happens to them. They're trying to make sure they don't suffer. They're trying to make sure they aren't uncomfortable. They're trying to make sure they're never put in an awkward situation. They're just trying to make sure that bad things stay away. And so here's what they do. We try to avoid the day of evil through three things, through cowardice, through compromise, and capitulation. So here's what we do. We see things coming at us in culture and we see how things are getting weird. And so what we do is we just kind of like we're cowards and we step back and we don't speak up when we should. And they've said that the only thing it takes for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing, to stand back. And it's the cowardice that says, if I speak up right now in my class, if I speak up right now in this room, if I speak up at this party, if I speak up with my colleagues, then I'm gonna be in trouble or make it awkward for myself. And so I'm gonna be a coward and not actually say anything. See, we're so afraid of the evil that comes back. We're so afraid of the blowback, the judgment, the condescension, the stares, that we do nothing, so it's cowardice. And then after cowardice comes compromise, where we say, no, 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 I know like, what the word of God tells me to do, but I'm just gonna go a little further. I'm gonna do a little more. I'm gonna go a little more into this. I'm gonna sacrifice this belief. I know what the scriptures say is right and wrong, but I wanna fit it in this crowd. I wanna make sure no one judges me. I wanna make sure no one looks down on me, so we compromise. 
And one little compromise just leads to a cascade of more and more compromise until eventually we capitulate. And eventually we walk away from Jesus. Eventually we say, well, God just kind of cramps my style, doesn't let me fit in in this social club or or this group or this activity or this status I want to reach in life. And so we capitulate to a culture that is godless and completely forgets about the things of God. Why? Because we're so terrified about what comes after. See, most people, most people try to avoid the day of evil. But can I remind you over and over and over again, you are not most people. You are a chosen people, a holy people, set apart for God's special possession. You are a people blood-bought and ransomed by God, set apart as a holy nation of priests for him. Most people try to avoid the day of evil. God's people prepare themselves for the day of evil. That's what we do. We recognize evil is coming. There are going to be difficult days in your life. There are going to be painful days in their life. There are going to be awkward moments in your life. You're going to feel judged sometimes. There are going to be times people look down on you because you're a Christian. Please get it out of your mind that you can be a cool enough Christian that no one else will ever judge you. Jesus says these words. He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. If you have tried to set up your kind of life where no one ever says a bad word about you because of your faith, Jesus says, woe to you. Like, we just got to get comfortable with being the type of people who say, here's Jesus, here's who he is, I stand here, and I know you don't like it, but I'm going to try my best to be a loving example of Jesus, and yet, I'm not going to compromise to try to make sure I have no problems in my life. Because those who compromise to make sure they have no problems in their life just walk into a train full of them. And so here's the deal. I just need us to get out of our minds the idea that you can somehow follow Jesus and never be opposed. Jesus says the world will hate you because they hated me first. That's what Jesus says. So what do we want to do? We want to steal ourselves, prepare ourselves, be ready to stand for the day of evil. Someone's going to judge you. Someone's going to misunderstand you. You're going to try to lovingly, caringly share the truth, and someone's going to misunderstand what you do. Someone's going to say all sorts of vile and foul things about you, and you as a believer need to prepare yourself for that day of evil. And here's how. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted for the gospel of readiness that comes or from with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What does it tell you to do? You want to be prepared for the day of evil? You want to know what's coming for you? You want to know what's coming in the next decade or two for Christians who try to walk faithfully with God? It is an onslaught. It is a Mack truck full of opposition, persecution, anger, bitterness, condescension. It's coming our way. How do we prepare ourselves? It says we stand firm. We stand firm. How do we do it? We put on the armor of God. It gives us six pieces of armor. And here's what I want to say. It's true about all six. The armor is a defensive tool. Armor is a defensive tool. The armor of God is not like you suit up and you go take over the country, right? It's not you suit up and you go take down all those evil, bad people who don't believe in Jesus. That's not what it is. It's that you would stand firm. Why? Because the God of the universe has already graciously given you all things. It all belongs to him. All the territory is yours. All the possession is yours. All the inheritance is yours. You stand upon it because the enemy wants to reclaim what Jesus died to give you. And your job is to say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm standing right here. Uh Uh-uh, Satan, you don't have a foothold in my life. You will not move me. You will not shake me. I will stand firm. I will put on the armor of God. Armor is a defensive tool because Satan owns nothing and God already owns everything. So here's what we see. Six pieces of armor. I'll roll through them real quick here. Six pieces. Number one, the belt of truth. The belt of truth defends us against the insanity of our culture. 
We all get that our culture has gone nuts, insane. There's not even a loose grounding of truth. It used to be the idea. The idea used to be like, there is no such thing as absolute truth. But now it's like, there's no such thing as absolute truth. But if you don't believe the same thing as me, I will end you, right? Like that's where we've gotten to in our culture. It's gone nuts. It's gone mad. It's gone insane. And so what do we need? We need to be the type of people that put the belt of truth around us, that are committed to truth. And listen to me, you need to be committed to a truth that is outside of yourself because you and I are too easily deceived. So uh, let, let, let's go back uh, about a decade into the Wayback Machine. Re- everyone remember the movie Inception? Okay, we remember that movie. Okay, so Inception. So if you didn't catch the movie or you didn't have time to watch or you were just too stressed out, um, here's what it is. Uh, people would get put into dreams and inside of dreams, all these things would happen and you could be put within a dream within a dream and you could be in a dream and not even realize you're in a dream. Confused yet? Totally, that was the movie. You were just confused for two and a half hours. But here's the deal. The main character in Inception has this little thing, this little token, and I'll put it up here on the screen if you remember this at all. And here's what he would do. He would spin it, and what would happen is if he was not in a dream, eventually this thing would fall over. But if he was in a dream, it would keep spinning. So this was his way of recognizing, am I in a dream or not? And why did he have to have a thing like this? Because here's what happened. He was so aware of how easy it was for him to be deceived that he needed to look to something outside of himself to know what was reality rather than to look inside of himself. Child of God, that's what you need as well. You need a source of truth that's outside of yourself because you and I are too easily deceived. We're too easily deceived, so we need to look outside of ourselves, not ourselves as the truth. And what is the truth we look to? The truth is the word of God. The truth is the word of God is outside of ourselves. So I don't look inward to find out what's true. The belt of truth points me to the word of God. And I'll speak this over you. It's God's word over your opinion. It's God's word over your emotion. It's God's word over your comfort. It's God's word over popular consensus. It's God's word over human tradition. God's word over unjust laws. God's word over Satan's lies. God's word over everything in all times and all places. Listen, it's God's word over your parents' word. It's God's word over your professor's word. It's God's word over everything that sets itself up against the goodness of Christ. It's God's word. We got to look to something outside of ourselves. That's the belt of truth. Goes on to talk about the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace defend us against nihilism and cynicism. Here's what I'm convinced of. I think our generation has been caught up in nihilism and cynicism. Nihilism says nothing matters. And nothing matters because why should I get married? Because I'll probably end in divorce anyway. Why should I start a business? It'll probably collapse. Why should I do anything meaningful in this world? It'll probably not work out. Why should I volunteer at that church? They're probably a bunch of abusers anyway. So everything, you just kind of, nothing matters and nothing's really important in this world. And so we go to eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. I'll just go on TikTok and get drunk and work a little bit, make some money and just kind of cruise through life because nothing matters anyway. And then that's followed right on the heels of cynicism. Cynicism that says anyone who's trying hard is probably faking it and trying to deceive me. Cynicism that looks at anything good or right or or praiseworthy in this world and tries to tear it down. Some of you have fallen into that same pit and it is the gospel of peace that lifts us out of that. Because nihilism says nothing in this world matters and the Christian gospel says your human soul will live on for eternity. Your human soul matters. Your life matters. Your body matters. This world matters because God's gonna redeem it all. And so the gospel of peace motivates me to say, in my most nihilistic moment where nothing seems to matter, you do, you do, you do. 
And if nothing else matters, at least the human being in front of me does because I can share the gospel of peace with them. And it bites against cynicism because cynicism tries to tear down anything meaningful in this world. And the gospel says, if one person comes to faith in Christ, heaven's rejoicing. That's what cynicism goes down. So the gospel of peace is what keeps me from this sort of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I'll just try to get through this life and maybe have a good time with my friends. That crumbles in light of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners. It goes on to number three, the shield of faith. Listen, the shield of faith defends us against the lies of the enemy. It says in there that the shield of faith protects us against the enemy, and it says his fiery darts. The enemy, I told you, his number one pitch is he's going to lie to you constantly over and over and over and over again. He's going to sit there with his fiery darts, his arrows, and just fire them at you. And what has God given you? He has given you the shield of faith to say, I know what you say, Satan, but I believe my God more than you. I know what you say, Satan, but I know what God told me already, so I don't need to listen to that. See, here's how most of us think when we think the shield of faith. These arrows are flying in, and we're like, I got this thing! And it's exhausting, right? It's exhausting because you're running in every direction. And it's, <clears throat> sorry, this is the end. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> every time I say this is the end, you all laugh and I feel unloved. Um, so, so listen, m- most of us do this where we just kind of think like it's my job to run around and avoid the, the, the arrows. But you know when in the ancient world, a Roman soldier never marched out on his own. Like a Roman soldier wasn't just like, I got my shield, let's go fight the enemy. Like that never happened. How do you do it? You've seen 300, you know how it goes, right? This is how it works. So what do we do? We stand back to back with one another. We defend each other from the lies of the enemy. I look in the face of my brother and I say, you are believing lies right now. Jesus died for you. He loves you. He wants you. He sees you. He knows you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is what I do. I'm not only defending myself, I'm defending my brother. I'm defending my sister. I'm defending you. So what's our job as a Christian? It's to get in little groups like this. Small groups, Bible studies, ministry teams, groups of five of you that sit around a table and just break bread and talk about the goodness of Christ. That's the shield of faith. This isn't a solo activity. It's you doing this together with the people you love and you. You giving permission to someone in your life to look you in the eyes and tell you you are being lied to by the enemy. And if you have never looked at another human being, and said, I need you to call me out if I'm believing the lies of the enemy. You are missing a great gift in this world. Some of you should do that before you go to bed tonight. You should look in the eye of another believer and say, you're that person. I want you to have permission to tell me when I'm being deceived. The next one is this, the breastplate of righteousness defends us against the consequences of sin. Um, In a Roman soldier, the heaviest piece of their armor was the breastplate. And it makes sense, right? Because the most vulnerable part, if you were to get hit by a sword or an arrow, is right up in here. It's your heart and all of your organs. It is the heaviest thing, but it's also the biggest payoff. It's the heaviest piece of armor, but it's also the most important one that benefits you the most. The same is true with righteousness. Righteousness is right living. It is living accordance to the word of God. It is living right side up in the way that God would have you live. And it is the heaviest thing. It feels like weight sometimes to walk in righteousness rather than sin. To walk in sin feels so easy, so light, so wonderful. To walk in righteousness can feel so heavy, and yet the payoff is unbelievably more than you could imagine. 
Let me tell you something. When you walk in righteousness, you start to avoid the consequences of the sin that would come your way. You start to walk in righteousness. You no longer have to pick up the pieces of relationships that you shatter with your sin. You no longer have to deal with the crippling addiction that comes from you thinking that porn or alcohol or opioids or anything else is no big deal. You don't have to walk in that anymore. Righteousness frees us. So it is a heavy weight. And yet the payoff is more than the weight. That's what we need to know, that it's going to free us from the consequences of our sin. And please, child of God, know that there is no condemnation for your sin, but there are consequences. And it will hurt, and it will bring pain, unnecessary pain in your life when you take things that are meaningful and important and trivialize them. And then finally, or next to finally, we have the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation defends us against the condemnation from our sin. There are consequences for your sin, but there is no condemnation. Jesus has taken that on the cross. He absorbed your sin and the wrath of God for it like a sponge. It all comes into Jesus. There's none left for you. The cup is empty. And the helmet of salvation sits upon our head to remind us when we cannot remind ourselves that we are fully and finally forgiven and not your emotions or opinions can change that. So if you don't feel saved, it doesn't matter because you are. All right. If you don't feel like God actually forgave you and made you his son or daughter, it doesn't matter because he did. That's what the helmet of salvation reminds us of. That salvation is an objective reality outside of us, not a subjective reality that we feel. It's a reality that we confess. And then finally, it says the sword of the spirit. Sword of the spirit defends us against Satan's lies. When you hear sword, you probably think medieval sword that's like big and long, but that's not what this is talking about. This is more like an 18 inch dagger. It's kind of like a dagger of the spirit. And this 18 inch dagger is something Roman soldiers would hold, not for when things were far away, but when it got real up close and personal. And they would be trained in this. Because you got to imagine, if I handed you an 18-inch dagger, you would probably hurt yourself very quickly, right? And so you got to be trained in how to use this dagger. you got to be trained in how to use the sword. Listen, it says in the Word that this sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And you need to be trained in it. You need to actually learn it. You can't just assume you can just roll up to the Bible and be like, ah, oh, this will help today. Like at some point, you got to learn. you got to educate yourself. And I've said this before. If you think the Bible's confusing, welcome to the club called Every Human Ever, Ever, Ever. It's confusing. And yet one of the worst things you will ever do in your life is go, well, it's confusing, so I guess I'll never try. Like, no, train yourself. Just like a Roman soldier would train themselves on how to use this 18-inch dagger, you train yourself. Listen, learn, sit under the teaching of the word of God. Get books, get resources. The best $50 you'll ever spend in your life is going and buying an ESV study Bible that has notes. And if you're like, I don't like the ESV, I don't care. Buy something else. Find a study Bible. Invest that money you'll never regret. I bought one 12 years ago. I still use it. It's the best money I've ever invested. Why? Because in order to know the word of God, in order for it to be useful, you need to be trained in it. You can't just randomly hope you'll figure it out someday. The sword of the spirit defends us against Satan's lies. See, listen, the full armor of God allows us to stand firm against Satan's schemes. Remember, the ground has already been given to you. Christ already earned it on the cross. Your job is to stand firm and say, Satan, you will not move me. You will not move me off this ground. You will not move me with your lies, with your temptation, with your fiery darts. Nothing's going to rattle me. And how do we know this is happening? Four things. Number one, you're winning the battle for your mind when you are saturated in God's truth. When you are just overwhelmed and saturated with God's truth, there's no more room for lies within you. When your cup is so filled with the goodness of God's truth, there's no more room for Satan's lies. Number two, you're winning the battle for your strength when your sin tastes sour and holiness tastes sweet. 
And let me tell you, there is a day is coming. And I know some of you think that could never happen with your sin of choice. You think you'll never be disgusted by it. You'll never want to turn from it. But there will be a day where the idea of looking at porn or going down that road or talking to that person or being with that guy or lying or manipulating or stealing or blaspheming seems so ugly to you. And the goodness of God seems so sweet. That is within your grasp by the power of the Spirit, and you will know you're winning the battle for your strength when it's not that you have to fight and white-knuckle against your sin, but where it seems filthy to you and sour. You know you're winning the battle for your heart when you can rejoice in suffering. Listen, I'm not impressed with a Christian who's happy all the time because everything's going well. I'm impressed with a Christian who says I'm suffering and things are hard and yet God is good and he has not forsaken me because he never will. That's what we do. We know we're winning the battle for our heart when we are at the lowest of our low and yet God sustains us through that. How's Satan gonna touch you after that? What's he possibly going to do? When you say if Christ is for me, who could possibly against me? He can't touch you. And then finally, you know you're winning the battle for your soul when you remember the cross of Christ. The next time you feel like you're too much of a sinner, God can never forgive you, remember the cross of Christ. The next time you feel like you've sinned one too many times for God, remember that Jesus said, it is finished. It's over. It's done. Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he's removed your transgressions from you. Someone in this room needs to know that God has not kind of forgiven you. He's fully forgiven you. And when I turn my eyes to the cross and I look to the bleeding Jesus, I remember that it is the blood of Jesus applied to my life that saves and rescues me. And I no longer need to sit under Satan's accusations. So here's, um, here's how we win those battles. We win those battles and we make progress toward this. We put on these armors, this part of the sword, this, 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 this full armor of God to take our stands by doing this one thing. We do spiritual practices. Um, and we've been saying this since the beginning of this series. I'll say it again. The spiritual practice are physical actions that change spiritual realities. When I read my Bible, that is a physical reaction to me turning pages and light going into my eyes. And yet it is changing spiritual realities around me. When I pray, I am doing something physical. My mouth is moving. Wind is going through my lips. And yet in that moment, it is changing spiritual realities. Some of you fasted over the last 21 days. And it might seem like, what did that accomplish? The answer is more than you'll ever know. It changes spiritual realities. That's what happens. The intersection, like what comes between physical and spiritual are these spiritual practices that we do. And what I want to urge you toward is that if you feel like you are in the midst of spiritual warfare right now, the best thing for you to do is not to read a book on spiritual warfare. It's not to listen to a sermon or watch a YouTube video. It is to get on your knees and seek the Lord through spiritual practices. That's what you need more than anything else. Why? We said this in the very beginning that physical obedience brings spiritual reward. Physical obedience brings spiritual rewards. See, our band's going to make their way up. And here's what I know this means for some of you. Some of you, before you go to bed tonight, need to actually get on your knees and pray before the Lord. And some of you just, you're like, I pray already. No, try it on your knees. See what happens. See what happens when you humble yourself physically. Some of you need to start reading your Bible. Some of you need to pray. Some of you fasted during this time and you need to actually make it a regular part of your life. Do you know that Christians in the ancient world, the first century would fast two days a week? Like, this is wild to me that we're like fasting. That's crazy. Maybe we'll try it once a year. And they were like two times a week. They would just do it Mondays and Wednesdays. They would just roll fasting. That's just what they did because they knew that physical obedience brings spiritual reward. But then here's what I want for some of you. Um, I don't want to put this out in the future. I just want to say this. Here's what everyone knows. If you've been around YA, you know what we're going to do. We're going to sing two songs right now. And here's what I know. You have a choice on how you engage in the next 10 minutes. You can stand there and sing the songs and that's fine. Maybe you're new to all of this and this is kind of strange and weird. And listen, we're so glad you're here. I just don't want to put any pressure on you. 
But if you know the Lord and walk with him and want to grow to be more like him, and more importantly, if you want to stand firm and stand your ground with the onslaught that Satan is bringing against you, I want you to understand that in this moment, right now, your physical obedience can bring spiritual reward into your life. What do I mean by that? The scriptures, when it talks about how we approach the Lord and come before him, use all kinds of physical descriptions. It says we raise up our holy hands before the Lord. Some of you have never done this before because it feels weird and you don't want to be judged and you don't want to look like that Christian. Tonight, look like that Christian because physical obedience brings spiritual reward. The Bible says we can stand in awe of God just in a reverence of who he is because physical obedience brings spiritual reward. We can sit in silence before God. Maybe everyone needs to sing tonight, but maybe you need to sit and actually be in the presence of God. The Bible says we can drop to our knees before the Lord. We can humble ourselves and kneel before him. We can fall onto our face. I don't know what you need to do tonight, but can I encourage you not to just let this be like this spiritual moment where you sing the words of the song. Can I encourage you, maybe for the first time in your life, to lift your hands up into the air, to say, God, I don't know why this would make a difference, but if physical obedience brings spiritual reward, I'm in because I need more of it. I need your armor. I need your spirit. I need to stand firm. I need to be strong in the Lord. There's an onslaught coming at me. I'm believing Satan's lies. I'm being tempted all over the place. I'm being pressured at my work. I'm being ridiculed at my school, and I need to stand firm. How's that going to happen? Through physical obedience that brings you spiritual reward. So here's what I want everyone in this room to do. Would you stand with me right now? Um, And like I said, we're gonna sing and we're gonna cry out to the Lord in these next two songs and whatever you need to do, this is a space of freedom tonight. We were praying even before the night started that just freedom would reign in this place. And so if you need to fall on your face somewhere in the aisle, go do that. If you need to fall to your knees, if you need to raise your hands, if you just need to stand in awe and silence, you do what you need to do tonight. You listen to God. You do what he says. Because when you walk in physical obedience, it will always bring spiritual reward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for the opportunity to look at your word, to consider it deeply, and to think about the spiritual realities of this world. Father, I pray that as we respond in singing with hands raised on our knees, on our faces, kneeling before you, yelling out in praise and worship, that you would meet us in this place tonight. God, I pray you would meet us in power in this place tonight. We pray against the devil. We pray against his schemes. We pray against his accusation, his temptation, his discouragement, and his lies. May the devil be cast into the pit of hell where he belongs and have no footing here in this room, have no footing here in this church, have no footing here in our lives. God, help us to put on your full armor tonight. I pray in some mysterious way that is beyond our comprehension that there will be men and women who walk out those doors tonight with a sense, a new taste of your flavor and your goodness and that you would be sweet to them and their sin would be sour. God, would you make us strong? Help us stand firm. We know everything that's coming to us in the next 10, 20, 30 years. We know all the opposition. We know all the condescension. And yet we know the resurrected one. So we call on his name. We cry out to him now. God, would you hear our praise and respond to our faith? We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said.